Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. again. Happy spring. I hope a lot of you are getting a little break, either have had one or it's coming up. Spring break is very needed right now, it feels like. And I wanted to share some really moving words from Flavia Zuniga West and Sydney Snyder of Adding Voices. And if you are not following them, they are at Adding Voices on Instagram. They have a Patreon where they share newsletters, lesson plans, and so much goodness. So it is absolutely worth supporting them through their Patreon and you get so much out of it. You know, they term it a newsletter. It's more like a digital magazine. It is just beautifully designed And the February newsletter had some just really inspiring words. And I've checked with them. They said, yes, it's okay to share a little bit of it. So I'm going to give you sort of a sneak peek. I'm just going to read some of these words that felt so deeply meaningful to me. So they said, we want to take a moment to celebrate you and us and our resilience as educators especially these last few months, or years really. In recent months, we've witnessed voter suppression, systemic inequities growing increasingly worse throughout the pandemic, an insurrection and attempted murder of high-ranking government officials, and a rapidly mutating virus, all through the eyes of our students. We've heard them express concerns verbally, process events through their art, ask to keep their cameras off because they've been crying, and yet they keep showing up to school and giving us their best. And we keep showing up and giving them our all. As we continue to show up for them, we need to remember to show up for ourselves too, as models for our students. We acknowledge those of you fighting a request for your return to unsafe teaching situations those of you already back on campuses. Though we all may agree that teaching is much more than a job, we have found ourselves uncomfortably called to be first responders to the children of the U.S. on top of our regular teaching duties. To be clear, there has not been a value shift in this country. Teachers are still underappreciated and underpaid. This is true for our grocery store clerks, farmers, delivery and postal workers, all deemed essential, but many without health insurance, consistent work, or proper protections from the pandemic. We are grateful for all of the educators who understand that the recent change in power does not mean our work is done. It's water in the well of the work that remains to be done. We must remember, things are not back to normal. We are writing with a sense of relief, but also the reality that the work must continue, that there is no finish line, no trophy. We need to continue to show up to do the work, 
tend to ourselves, and lean on this community we are building together. Ah, and there is so much more in this February newsletter. There is a new one coming out very soon. It is absolutely worth joining and being a part of their community, seeing all of the goodness that they put out into the world. So head over to Adding Voices, click through to their Patreon. I will also add a link in the show notes, but that letter on their February newsletter felt just so meaningful and worth sharing. All right, I have a fantastic interview today to share that I'm really excited about sharing. Before we dive in, there is our featured artist, and I wanted to just share that our spring open call is hours away from closing. It closes on Sunday, March 28th, and then Maria and I will be going through all of the entries and selecting artists, getting back to them, and then getting that show up in mid-April. We also have some exciting plans for this online gallery space coming up that are more sort of community focused. So Uh, We are still figuring it all out, so I will share once we've kind of got that figured out, but I'm really excited about the possibilities. Each week, I'm sharing a featured artist as well as a guest interview. I'll share a bit about the featured artist here as well as sharing images of their work on Instagram and on the website. This week's featured artist is Emmy Burns. Emmy is a visual artist who lives and works in Seattle, Washington. She was born and raised in Tokyo, Japan, and immigrated to the U.S. in 2018. She mainly works in oil and mixed-media painting, expressing how her internal world synchronizes with the external environment. Her works depict emotional scenes from her mind's eye, oscillating in between abstract and figurative elements. Emmy Burns received her BFA in oil painting from Tama Art University in Tokyo, and her works have been exhibited in Japan and the U.S. She most recently participated in a juried virtual 3D exhibit, Touch, presented by BG Gallery in Santa Monica, California. Since relocating to the U.S., art has become a self-identifying practice, and a core motive of her art is to express raw individuality and transition. Illuminated by diverse intercultural appreciation, Burns believes that very personal matters can achieve universality beyond division through art. In her statement, she says, My art is about sensations and emotions. I draw beauty that I admire and feelings that I want to set free. Interesting finds are captured and random moments overlap. Contrasts attract me as dualities, not as opposing forces. Capturing the duality leads to the interconnectedness of these moments, where both presence and absence resonate ephemeral but powerful, impermanent yet eternal. Sorrow and aches also dwell within the beauty and joyousness, and my core theme is to grasp the rawness of sensations. 
She says, making art empowers me. It dives into where my perception, thoughts, observation, and discoveries overflow, which enhances a vivid perception. And you can see more of Emmy Burns's work on our blog post, as well as shared via Instagram. So check the show notes for those links and make sure you're following us at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram, as well as you can follow Emmy at emmyburns.art. That's E-M-I-B-U-R-N-S dot art. And if you would like to be a featured artist, you can apply on our website at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. Jeremy Blair had such helpful advice and encouragement from his perspective as an art education professor, educating future teachers. We kept coming back to the connections and rhizomatic nature of education, how these seeds that we're planting can grow and drop new seeds years down the road. Jeremy shared some exciting projects and ideas he's exploring, both in his own artwork and with his students. I loved hearing about his mobile darkroom, recreating Saul Lewitt's instructional wall drawings in his STEAM studio class, and plans for a room-sized Rube Goldberg machine. I want to take this class. I'll link to the artists and apps he mentioned, and we'll share the resources he talked about. Jeremy Blair is an assistant professor of art education at Tennessee Tech University, Jeremy received his bachelor's and master's degrees from Miami University and his doctorate from the University of North Texas. Before moving to Tennessee, he worked as a K-12 art teacher in Savannah, Georgia, a visiting professor at the University of Georgia and a curator at the University of Colorado Art Museum. In addition to teaching, Jeremy is also a practicing artist. He participates in creative residencies and regularly exhibits cameraless and alternative process photography. He resides in Cookville, Tennessee. And he actually taught a former guest, Rachel Petruccelli. So that was a really exciting connection. Let's hear from Jeremy. I am here with Jeremy Blair, and I'm excited to get this perspective because you work at the university level helping train art teachers. Yes, I do. So I would love to hear your background. And I know you've listened. So just kind of the same starting point is how did you get into art and then also teaching? And what kind of led you to where you are now? Sure. So I remember my mom like discovering a little drawing I had made So my dad was in the Navy when I was young, and then she found this little drawing of a submarine when I was like three or four years old. And it had like a propeller on it, and the waves were actually, they kind of looked transparent. And she Mm -hmm. thought that that was pretty advanced for a small child to be drawing something like that. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, from when I was like three or four, my parents had been, you know, putting me in after school programs and they even moved to a a school district that was neighboring to where we were originally living so I could have a, a slightly better school district. So from a very early age, art was my thing. I was, I, I identified myself at school as the art kid and I was in punk bands in high school and had a really good 
public high school art education where we had several different art teachers. So that was like my whole identity. And then once, you know, starting to think about college and what should I do in college, I took all kinds of like aptitude tests and all kinds of things, but everything just came back to art education for me. Mm -hmm. So when I was, you know, 18 or 19, I was a freshman in college at Miami University in Ohio as an art education major. Mm -hmm. So I think I was just really inspired by all those classes I had taken as a child. I had these tremendous teachers. I'm still in touch with some of those teachers today, even after, you know, I graduated high school like 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we're still connected today. And then it just basically fit like a glove, like everything with art education, where it was this intersection of I'm taking studio classes, but I'm also thinking and training as a teacher at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it just, it just clicked. And then years later, you know, I got a master's degree in art education from Miami University again. After that, I taught for a while and then I went back to school and got a PhD in art education as well. So Mm -hmm. I've just been addicted to how do I communicate the arts? How do I teach the arts? How do I share the arts? Probably from when I was a toddler uh, up until today. Yeah, amazing. I love that story of the drawing and just your mom seeing that talent and then, you know, kind of pushing pushing you forward is kind of incredible that, you know, that they moved for you and mm-hmm. really like supported and encouraged that. You don't always see that with the arts. You don't. It's, it's rare. And, mm-hmm. and I don't come from an artistic family per se. You know, I have one great aunt who makes like a hundred quilts every year. Wow. And she is highly productive. And every day she sits at the sewing machine and she mainly mm-hmm. just gives them away for free. Uh, and that's just the way that she thinks and moves through the world is creating things out of fiber. Mm-hmm. And we think maybe it's something from that maybe because my mm-hmm. parents are not artistic, but they just extremely supportive, came from a great family. And I was an only child, you know, so maybe mm-hmm. that made some some difference too, where they were able to really just support me in every way and had a lot of a, a time and attention for me growing up for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible to hear. I'm the parent of what is planned to be an only child. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you get a lot of sort of pushback on that. When are you going to have a sibling? Mm-hmm. But yeah, hearing sort of positive stories like that is really encouraging. And now you're a professor of art education at Tennessee Tech. Yes. And when did you kind of jump into that role? Well, I so I'll take a step back. So when I graduated with my master's degree, I I knew I wanted to move away, not because I didn't like Ohio and didn't like my parents, but I just (laughs) wanted to explore. And I I just was really into that kind of wanderlust stage of my life. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't married yet. And so I ended up applying for a bunch of jobs and I got a job at a high school in Savannah, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life forever where I was driving on different streets. It was a totally different landscape. I could go to the beach whenever I wanted to. Um, I could kind of create my own new identity where I wasn't linked to anything else in Ohio. So I was doing, I was taking risks and doing things I probably wouldn't have done back home Mm -hmm. because I was in this totally new place. And being at that school, I like thrived. 
it was the best move for me. And, you know, the, the students were very challenging, which was a great thing for me as a young teacher to come to work every day. And it was a brand new challenge every single day. I had these awesome, super young, hip, cool colleagues that really inspired me. And I was there for three years and realized, man, I, I want to keep going further. How do I keep getting better as a teacher? How do I how do I get more responsibilities? How do I get more exposure? Because I was just loving teaching so much. And this idea of getting my PhD and possibly teaching higher ed where I would be training the teachers that would go into these other cities and they would be influencing people or influencing their students. That was just very appealing to me. Mm -hmm. So I ended up quitting my job, which was risky, obviously. Mm -hmm. And this was during um, the recession in 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. um, so I quit my job as a teacher and I had won many awards and had a lot of success there. And I moved to Denton, Texas, which is near Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. And that's where the University of North Texas is. And I started in their PhD program. Mm -hmm. And most, most people in that program are tracked to be a professor in higher education. You know, not all of them, but most of them are. Mm -hmm. And within, I think within two weeks of me moving to Texas, I met my wife in a grad student meeting. And once again, that, that experience I had in Savannah where everything was so new and awesome was happening again in Texas for me. And mm -hmm. I ended up just thriving and had just the best professors, the best program for me personally, um, and was just really inspired. Um, and then after I graduated, I did kind of bounce around a little bit, which is common in academia. Mm -hmm. So I was a visiting professor at the University of Georgia where I learned so much working at like a huge school where there's all these expectations. And I worked there for about a year. And then after that, I was actually a museum curator at the University of Colorado Boulder. Mm -hmm. And that was a totally different type of job where I really wasn't working that much with students, but more, you know, using the museum as a, as a teaching space and working with the collections there and doing a lot of collaborations. And then I decided I wanted to be with students. Like that was a thing I was really missing when I was in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And then this job uh, opportunity popped up in the middle of Tennessee and the students are so driven. They're excited to come to class most days. A lot of them have jobs and are first generation college students. So they have like this ultimate purpose to be in school. Mm. And it's just been a tremendous fit for me to come here. And this is now my my fourth year here. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're assuming, me and my wife are assuming this is our forever home. Uh, mm. We love the culture. We love the school. And I just love being kind of the hub and their connection to this great career that they're going to start for themselves. Yeah. And then is your wife also teaching there? She is. She is an, an adjunct instructor in art, art appreciation. Okay. Um, and she does lots of other things at the university, smaller things, but that's her main role here um, is teaching art appreciation. And we, we both have the same love for this area. Yeah. And I love how you talk about, you know, having, having this role sort of give you, like I'm picturing almost like roots spreading out where, mm -hmm. you know, or even like maybe more, more apt is like the tree and like the leaves spreading out and sort of mm -hmm. falling, dropping on the ground that, you know, you're able to touch all of these students in the art ed program who then go on to reach their own students. Oh yeah. It's so like 
I don't know if this is a word, but like rhizomatic, mm-hmm. these rhizome, you know, roots that branch off. And yeah. one thing that's been a lot different than K through 12 teaching for me has been, I feel like the relationships that I'm developing here at Tennessee Tech are extremely long-term. Mm-hmm. So 20 years from now, 30 years from now, my students that I've had here that became you know, art education professionals, we're still going to be connected. We're going to be colleagues. We're going to be trading ideas. I have you know, visited my recent grads who are now teachers in the, mm-hmm. their own program they're developing. I've been in their rooms and you know, done recruiting for Tennessee Tech in their classroom. Uh, so it's just this amazing cycle that that root, and it's just really satisfying to see some of the the broader themes and, and things that we've talked about in our program here actually showing up in a high school in Chattanooga or a middle school in the Knoxville area and seeing the the seeds that I've planted actually grow. Yeah. And I feel like that also ties back to how you were saying you're still in touch with some of your past mm-hmm. teachers that, you know, it's these long-term relationships. Yeah. I just, I just did a talk, uh, a virtual talk with Miami University, I think back in November, um, mm-hmm. 2020. And I was talking about basically one of, one of the courses I teach is called Steam Studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, we're teaching, you know, those intersections of art and STEM learning. Mm-hmm. And I was just basically talking about that course and presenting it. And without me even knowing, my favorite art teacher from Fairfield High School was in the Zoom call wow. and she's there watching me. And I can see her, like I can see her face in the little like Brady Bunch view on <laughs> Zoom. And she's just like drinking wine and just <laughs> and just soaking it in. And I could oh. tell she's like listening, but really it was... She was, she felt so good that she had this great role in my life. And now I am presenting this talk and she's just sipping wine and enjoying it. Uh, and that's what I want to do 20 years from now with, with my students. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I would love actually to hear more about those courses. Like that Steam Studio sounds amazing. Sure. Yeah. When one of the appeals of coming here to Tennessee Tech was it was basically the way that our our chair of the School of Art, Craft and Design kind of operates is, you know, whenever there's a new faculty person hired in, you know, we get to design curriculum and we get to have those conversations and are there courses that are effective? Are there courses that are not effective that need to be changed? So I came into this program with a different philosophy from the from the last person who had retired and we started implementing a new curriculum and we kind of did a, a pairing of courses. One course is called Digital Technologies and Art Education, mm-hmm. which my students were required to take basically like a Photoshop and InDesign course mm-hmm. originally. And that course uses a lot of hardware and software that my students won't have access to most likely when they're working in public schools. So I designed my own course, which involved a lot of smartphone applications and Chromebooks and iPads and document Mm -hmm. cameras and projects with animation and green screen and 3D printing, things that will be a little more accessible to them and would weave into art education extremely well. Mm -hmm. So that was one course. And then the other course was the Steam Studio course, which is basically like a every week we explore a different theme that intersects art and STEM in some way. So last week we talked about Soul LeWitt. 
the uh, minimalist artist. And uh, we created instructional drawings where I actually printed out original faxes that he would send in the 70s and 80s and 90s to gallery owners. And then people at those galleries would actually draw these like there. It would be like a. Um, instructions or procedures on how to draw this mural. Mm-hmm. So Solowitz not going to draw it because he's a, min- a minimalist. So people at the gallery have to draw it. Yeah. So I printed out a lot of those original procedures and instructions, and then my students have to actually implement those in our studio space. Mm-hmm. Other examples are, you know, we design uh, very simple video games in that class. I also will transform our drawing studio into a dark room, mm-hmm. which relate well to my personal studio practice. So I basically mm-hmm. teach them what I do on my own in my practice and how to make like a DIY darkroom. And we talk about chemistry and and just how light works in darkroom photography. And then we do light lighter things too, like tomorrow or on Tuesday, um, this coming Tuesday, we're going to make a huge inflatable sculpture that's going to fill up the entire drawing studio. Uh, We've also made like Play-Doh and slime and sidewalk chalk from scratch. Mm-hmm. And within all those projects, I'm trying to create kind of a universal theme, if that's chemistry or light or nature. And then we explore that theme equally through art and through one of the STEM disciplines. Mm-hmm. And I invite non-art majors to be a part of that class so that we have those different perspectives. We'll do collaborations on campus as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like a really, really cool class. It's something new every minute. I have no idea what my students are going to be even creating, really. I just give them prompts and ideas, and then they just run with it. That sounds like so much fun. I love the connection to Saul Lewitt, and Mm -hmm. I even, it made me think of something I feel like I did in high school with almost connected to robotics, or like it was through, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but basically being paired up and you know, one partner has to give the other instructions yep. <laughs> that, you know, then they have to figure out how to follow and and have the same result. Exactly. I mean, I steam is such a new thing. Like we go over like kind of the origins of steam in that class. And I really reiterate, like, this is a brand new newborn baby in education. So what we're doing in this class is just creating a little foundation and the, they will go out and create their own steam practice, you know, in their mm-hmm. future classroom. But One of the things I really emphasize is I call them steam ingredients. Mm -hmm. And basically, we really can't do a true steam project or have a steam mindset without collaborating, without problem solving, Mm -hmm. without making something, you know, and I have this whole list that I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's this whole list of like almost checking off. Are you mm-hmm. are your students collaborating? Are they problem solving? Are they questioning things? Are mm-hmm. they investigating something? And that is an easy way to really translate. If you have a pretty traditional art lesson and you want to incorporate a little more of a STEAM practice or more of an interdisciplinary practice, you know, just thinking of what are those things, what are those elements in STEAM that are very evident that you can really sprinkle in and and become part of the foundation of of your current lesson. Right. And I see that also as really connected to like the studio habits of mind. I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of those studio habits can be translated to science as well or 
any of the STEM disciplines, you know, observation, sort of very broad Mm -hmm. habits that an artist might have, or that also a scientist or an engineer might have. Yeah, I totally agree. Every day in that in the STEAM class I teach, we talk about breaking down those silos, breaking down the walls. Mm -hmm. I always tell them, I want your future principal to come into your classroom, and they don't know what subject you're teaching. You know, I want you to blur those lines because reality or or our life doesn't have these walls around it, you know, but education has put walls around things because it's easier to fund and it's easier to, to run a school that way, Mm -hmm. but that's not really how our brains work at all. So I think that, you know, beyond the kind of flashy fun projects, you know, that's the thing I really want them to move forward with is just breaking down those walls and blurring those lines. Yes, that's so great. And I love how you're also connecting it to your own work that Mm -hmm. does really kind of blur those lines. For sure. And we'll get into that in a little bit. I did also want to, you know, just say that I love the idea also of the other course you mentioned, the digital technology Mm -hmm. in Art Ed and how you're sort of using more accessible tools. Yes. Are there any tools that you would sort of highly recommend that you feel like are really, really useful in that realm? Sure. So I... I'm always trying to use my students' smartphones because mm-hmm. they're highly motivated by them in every other aspect of their life. Right. So why would that change with teaching and learning? Right. Mm-hmm. So of course I have I have like a list of like a hundred apps that I oh. kind of update uh, fairly often. And whoever's listening to this, you know, you're more than welcome to contact me anytime, and I can send you that list or I can send you the list as well. But so we experiment with apps a lot. The one that tends to be kind of the epicenter of a lot of the things that we do. And it breaks out of just that digital technologies class and students end up using it a lot in other classes Mm -hmm. is the Google arts and culture app. Mm. That has just been a tremendous resource for my students because they get, they get overwhelmed with like, where do I go to learn about all these things? What can I, what's a cool, quick thing that I can do? What's something I can do to kind of study for my licensure exam. Mm. And that app just has all kinds of stuff in it, experiments and art history and all kinds of stuff, you know, so I would really recommend that app. And then we do a lot with a couple of different animation apps Mm-hmm. And I think it's like do ink green screen app. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much you can do. People can go to our, our programs, Instagram account and check out just all the amazing things my students have been doing with just simple mm-hmm. tools like that, making animated little shorts and making music videos with this green screen app and they're all free. And in that class, I, I do a similar structure to my steam class where we kind of have a theme for the day and, or a theme for that week. And then I give them some tools and some materials to start with. And then I just have them experiment and play and collaborate. And they end up usually creating things way beyond my expectations. Yeah. And that, I'll just say that Instagram account is TN Tech Art Ed. Mm. And I will link to all of that as well. And I'll link to your, your site and everything at the end. Cool. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. And are you right now, what is your kind of teaching situation? Are you remote or in person or some mix of the two? (laughs) I'm definitely a mix. uh, And (laughs) and I'm I'm thankful to be a mix right now. I have like my, my core studio classes are in person. We're wearing masks, we're Mm -hmm. distancing and it works here. 
the students have been dedicated. I have very few absences. Um, students are very responsible here with with mask wearing and everything, and and they haven't they have been motivated too. And then like my seniors, uh, we do mainly Zoom class sessions and Zoom conversations individually because they are spread out. So mm-hmm. Tennessee Tech is actually in a little city called Cookville, which is right between Nashville and Knoxville. Mm-hmm. So there's it's uh, an hour and 20 minutes to Nashville and an hour and 10 minutes to Knoxville from Cookville. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have students spread out that whole region and they're, they're doing their student teaching or their residency teaching right now. So they just call in on Zoom and we talk for as long as we need to about all the top all the topics and things that are going on while they're residency teaching. And then I also teach a couple different like independent study courses this year mm-hmm. um, just because it's we need flexibility and we just we just need to have classes that can meet at different times, mm-hmm. especially during the pandemic. So I teach a couple smaller independent study courses over Zoom. So I kind of have a, a balance. But in the School of Art, Craft, and Design here at Tennessee Tech, we're mainly in person with masks and distancing because we have the facilities that can handle that and we can spread out and do things properly. Mm-hmm. And we're just, our university as a whole has decided to do a lot of in-person and hybrid approaches as well. Yeah. And then for the students who are doing their student teaching, does that kind of range in whether they're in-person or hybrid or mm-hmm. remote? Very much so. It, it, some schools, they'll do like a week virtual and then a week in person, and they'll kind of flip-flop just depending Mm -hmm. on the numbers in the area and and the absences and the availability of substitutes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then some schools have have implemented a permanent, like every Friday is a virtual day, no matter what, and they have Mm -hmm. this kind of weird ABC schedule. It just depends on, on every school. So I have eight seniors this year that are in their residency placements and all eight of them have a totally different schedule. Uh. It's challenging for them and challenging for me. Mm -hmm. And then of course they have these big assessments. You know, there's an assessment called ed TPA, which they have to pass that assessment in order to get licensed by the state of Tennessee and that they all have to, to do that assessment uniformly, but they all have different, totally different schedules. So it's, it's really hard to kind of get them prepared for this assessment when they're on totally different schedules. And it's hard for them to kind of share ideas and collaborate and be excited about teaching when there's just all this constant change and the students themselves are are highly distracted as well. Mm-hmm. So it's been a very challenging year, but I, I think I keep reiterating to them that they are going to be the strongest, this generation of teachers, not just my student teachers at Tennessee Tech, but this generation of seniors that are graduating soon and are going to become teachers are going to be the rock solid foundation of the next generation of teachers. They're Mm -hmm. so strong. They've had to problem solve every single moment of the day. They've had to have ultimate patience and they haven't given up. Mm -hmm. They have, they could have changed their majors. They could have done something else with their life, but they've chose to stick through this year. So I'm just really proud of, proud of their stick to itiveness and their confidence as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even all the teachers that are kind of getting through this, I feel like even those of us with more experience are 
really having to adapt and figure things out. It's almost like going through the first year of teaching again. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I did. I was on, I was appointed. That sounds like a, it's more fancy than it is. But I was point, appointed to this committee called the Hybrid Learning Task Force over the summer. And it was all in reaction to what we had all gone through in the spring and how do we develop some resources and things to really help our faculty here. And it was just very apparent that even the the newest teachers, the oldest teachers, whoever it was, we were all just getting in the same room and just trying to figure out how to how to salvage and how to move forward and there was no right or wrong answer and and what you just said with it felt like your first year teaching again mm-hmm. i actually wrote that down on a post it note and yeah. put it into a little talk i gave to teachers later in the year about like you might have all these super high expectations but you might feel like you're a first year teacher again so let's actually reflect on what it was like to be a first year teacher and what are the things that we had to do that first year to just survive and and keep learning and i think a lot of those things we had to repeat this year for sure mhm yeah and then how do you feel like this will like what kind of more permanent changes do you think this will create within teacher education i really think the now that we all know how to use these virtual meeting tools if it's Zoom or Teams or whatever it is i think that will be a permanent stay mm-hmm. um even things like snow days i don't know if a lot of communities will have a snow day anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> we might have a virtual learning day instead you know so, so i think there will be things like that where just a couple years ago we didn't even a lot of us didn't know what zoom was and only a few people were really confident using Skype or another program like that and now we've just been thrown into it so i i think that'll be commonplace and with students being absent i think we'll have instead of the we'll catch you up when you get back mm-hmm. you know after you've been sick i think there will be higher expectations as well but i don't know that it'll be an exciting thing to see you know once things kind of settle down in the next year and we get back to some sort of normalcy mm-hmm. you know what are those things that will latch on and become part of our forever practices and what are the things that will just have been part of the moment you know i'm not sure yeah and as a like from the teacher's perspective hearing like possibly no more snow days and possibly mm-hmm. having to like you know provide virtual learning if students are going to be absent you know it's like i love the idea of not having those sort of gaps in the learning but then there's also this question of well am i you know this has been so hard being expected to do and i'm not really i'm mostly teaching via video but i talk to so many teachers who are really struggling with this like basically double workload and how to manage that and then to have sure. the idea that like that might be a possibility for the future is a little daunting it is and i guess the only thing that that i am kind of excited about is this mm-hmm. this next generation um if it's you know my students this year that are graduating and the next couple rounds of new teachers this is just a normal tool to them this is normal to them actually so i think they will build some long-term sustainable practices that mm-hmm. would consider the workload that's involved with having to do a small group of virtual teaching and doing your your traditional teaching in your classroom simultaneously because mm-hmm. they've all experienced it 
you know, so I have faith that that will be sorted out, but I've already heard lots of comments um, in my state here about burnouts and just doing way too much. And, and that's one of the things I, I do a lot of like professional development sessions. And one of the things I talk a lot about is you yourself as a teacher, the way you're building relationships and communicating the material, you're enough. Like you don't have to do everything, you know, and I know that we, all of us teachers, we wear capes a lot of times and, you know, we, we go above and beyond, but there has to be a line where there will be another day, you know, so let, let's address that tomorrow and not try to teach all those virtual sessions and in person and do things all at the same time. You know, it's just, it's way too much and it's not sustainable. Yeah. And I love the idea of having sort of more sustainable practices where, you know, to me that that feels like maybe as I'm developing my curricula, I'm developing it in Google Slides or, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere there where it is shareable with students. So it's not like having to do it twice where I'm just as I write it, I'm writing it in a way that I can use that as like if it needs to be virtual, like here it is, just send it off. Yeah, a lot of my students are I catch them doing so much stuff on like post-it notes and all these things. And then I show them like, here is my Google drive. I have a folder for this one class I teach Mm -hmm. in this folder. I have all these documents and resources and it's not perfectly organized, but that's my hub for this class. So if you ever need something from me as the instructor, I go straight to that folder and I dig for it and Mm -hmm. I find it and I can send it to you. And then we have a whole system here at the university called iLearn, which is basically the same thing um, where you can have all of your curricula and your resources all organized for students to access, you know, so I think that is a learning, that's going to be a a great learning curve for my students is streamlining your practice and making sure you're not tripling your workload when you really don't have to. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Another thing that I've been talking a lot about here and just hearing a lot about is what's sometimes termed like this second pandemic, you know, systemic racism in the U.S., which is nothing new, but um, something that a lot of us are kind of waking up to and and really like directly addressing. So I'm curious how that's happening at the university university level and with sort of educating the future educators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a, we're in this kind of, I call it a bubble, you know, being between Mm -hmm. Knoxville and Nashville, you know, we have these two major cities that everyone's probably heard of. And then we're this kind of almost like a bedroom community or just kind of Mm -hmm. this little city that you kind of pass through to get to one of those bigger cities. Mm -hmm. Most of the people that are here were born and raised here. And it's mainly a Caucasian people that live here. So it's, it's interesting. And then you plot a university of about 10,000 students right in the middle of that small city. (laughs) Um, So you have this, like, you know, most universities are are quite left leaning and they're Mm -hmm. providing all these experiences that a lot of our students literally have never experienced before. Mm -hmm. So we do have all kinds of resources and clubs and experiences and things at the university level that we offer. And then in my class, you know, I, I teach their, the first class that they take in the fall of their freshman year is called Art Education Theory. Mm-hmm. And in that class, we basically look at how, how was art education or the arts in general defined by the people in ancient Greece, in classical antiquity, all the way up until today. 
And we do almost every time period in between, you know, how are the people in the middle ages defining art? How are we defining art today? And we're looking at, you know, different authors and artists um, that are responding to George Floyd riots and all of those things. So it's kind of, it's a really interesting class to, to literally talk about Socrates and then say six weeks later, we're talking about the George Floyd incident in mm-hmm. uh, Minneapolis. Um, so it just adds that kind of historical context to things. And um, so we definitely have like a full week where all we do is talk about social justice in art history. Mm-hmm. So we look at, you know, all kinds of different time periods of art history. I'll bring in famous paintings like um, uh, The Raft of the Medusa by Jericho. And then, of course, up to, you know, Shepard Fairey's Hope poster and Kahinde Wiley's, you know, amazing portraits and, and everything mm-hmm. in between. And then we'll, we'll also have days where we look at more contemporary artists and contemporary practices. There might be artists like Kara Walker or Diedrich Brackens, uh, who are both African-American artists. Mm-hmm. And we talk about their context and how they've come to make the art that they make. And mm-hmm. I would say it's a month-long unit that involves a lot of talks of conflict. There's risks in me talking about some of this stuff sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I need to have courage and just present, you know, these are the experiences that these artists are reacting to. This is what they want you to know about the story. Uh, This is the context that maybe you're not seeing because you live in Cookville, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. um, and you're not from where they're from. And then we'll even look at more classic examples like Jane Quick to see Smith mm-hmm. and, and some of their um, installations. And then of course, like uh, Yayoi Kusama. Mm-hmm. And, and so some of those are kind of the world famous artists, no matter what, that are mm-hmm. almost in the canon of sorts. And then some are much more intimate artists that we're learning about the conflicts that they've gone through. So in that class, after that long rant, um, so in in, uh, in that class, I'm just exposing them to these are issues throughout history. We're looking at Ruby Bridges, you know, walking out of the school and how Norman Rockwell responded to it. We're talking about that incident. Like, how was that incident and how did that change society? How are we still feeling the effects of incidents like this? And a lot of them have never had these conversations. So they feel kind of entry level in a way, but I think it plants that seed. So then when we get to other courses in my program or when they go into other courses at the university level, they're not afraid to bring up these topics. They're not afraid to react to things. They're more empathic um, when they encounter somebody that has experienced life differently than them. Mm -hmm. And then amongst all of those artists of color, I kind of rattled off. We also talk a lot about women throughout history as well. Mm -hmm. And my wife really helps kind of inform what I'm teaching and she'll even help teach certain things as well and provide Mm -hmm. questions and prompts. It's kind of a collaborative effort, but we're definitely in a bubble here where we need to expose our students to all these things and really help them uh, help provide some context of what's happening in today's society as well. I really like how you talked about, you know, that it takes courage for you to be Mm -hmm. talking about these issues that are so important to be talking about. You know, it's it's so different. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles where we can, you know, it feels it's just a very different environment. Right. And sort of the expectations that I'm hearing from the schools I work with and, you know, the nonprofits that that I work with 
are really pushing, you know, the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, mm-hmm. social justice aspect of what we're teaching. But, you know, I've heard from teachers, especially in more sort of rural areas, that they're scared to bring even bring up any of that. So sure. you as a professor, like, you know, you're not only teaching your students, but you're also modeling for them as an educator having that courage and even maybe modeling the ways to bring up these topics. So I think that's really important and admirable and definitely keep doing it. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. It, yeah. It's one of the reasons why I do it this way, especially in the philosophy of just, I want to expose them to not only the artwork, but mm-hmm. the the inspiration of why the artwork was created, the art mm-hmm. or the artists themselves and their background is because I have learned since moving here four years ago that all of the K through 12 schools are really not allowed to bring that stuff up mm-hmm. in, in Cookville, Tennessee. You know, that mm-hmm. is just not a thing. That is not school. Mm-hmm. And not just, you know, racial inequalities and things like that, but any type of social issue. You know, I had a a student teacher years ago do a project where a student made a poster on suicide awareness. Hmm. And of course, that's a major issue at the high school level. So Hmm. this was very appropriate, an appropriate topic. And Mm -hmm. they were addressing this topic in an appropriate way as a student. It wasn't a gruesome thing at all. But the school did not like it at all. And I got Mm -hmm. a phone call about it and I had to have meetings about it and address why is your student teacher facilitating a project where a kid is talking about suicide prevention? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's what I've actually trained my students to do (laughs) Mm -hmm. is if there's an issue in society, it's going to be affecting our K through 12 students. So we have to find a way to communicate that or give them the runway so that they can communicate it to us, the teachers. And, you know, that's how I've trained all of my students, all of my students here at Tennessee Tech. And that practice was, you know, not appreciated. Mm -hmm. So we talk about that a lot. I even bring up there was an art contest that I helped adjudicate years ago in Tennessee, and there was a drawing that an 11th grader made, and it was this brilliant drawing, like just hyper-realistic, so much skill, and so much emotion was put into it. I loved it so much, and it was a portrait of a girl with a plastic bag over her head, and she was suffocating, Mm -hmm. and it was very raw. But it was also just a tremendous drawing. Mm-hmm. And we debated a long time as judges and people that were sponsoring the art contest. And we were actually unable to provide the award and acknowledgement that that artist deserved because mm-hmm. we weren't allowed to. Wow. Because of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. So I literally, I actually have an image of that drawing and I project it in my class in that art education theory course. And I asked them, you know, here's the story. I wasn't allowed to give them an award. You know, what would you do if you were the judge, mm-hmm. you know, and then my students kind of debate back and forth, you know, so I, I take these, these little fail failures I've had, or these little conflicts that I've, I've encountered the last several years here in Tennessee. And then I make sure to bring them into my class and almost like shine a mirror and say, mm-hmm. I experienced this in Cookville. What would you do if this happened to you as the teacher? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like it's 
it's sort of the long game of, you know, keep pushing, keep pushing and moving the needle little by little. That's all you can do here. There's just, there's no major change that's going to happen. It's uh, the the culture has a deep foundation here, Mm -hmm. but the people here are just tremendous and they're nice and polite. And, you know, we feel at home here too. So it's, I don't want to get, I don't want to paint a a bad picture at all. You Mm -hmm. know, there's just specific challenges in art education Mm -hmm. that kind of brew a little bit here that create great teaching moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a a nice way to kind of, I like that you're turning it into these teachable moments at, Mm -hmm. you know, with your student teachers, with your, you know, future educators. quick note before we jump into this week's episode. I so, so, so appreciate your written reviews. It is incredibly meaningful to hear your feedback and how these conversations inspire, encourage, and entertain you. So if you're enjoying the show and you want to continue to support the show, reviews make such a difference and they don't cost any money. You can leave a review by just scrolling to the bottom of wherever you're listening to this and hitting the five stars or writing what you've enjoyed about the show so far. Another fabulous and free way that you can support the show is to share the episodes you're listening to on Instagram or your favorite social media, Facebook, Twitter, I don't know, whatever you have. Screenshot and share to your stories in Instagram It makes me so happy to see you folks listening to this in your studios, on your commute, in your classroom, and to hear what your takeaways are. Don't forget to tag Teaching Artist Podcast so I can see it. And if you want to also tag my personal account, you can, and that is Pottsart, P-O-T-T-S-A-R-T. So we have talked a lot about teaching. I would love to hear more about your work. Sure. And, you know, you brought up earlier how you're bringing it into your teaching and helping your students learn how to make a DIY darkroom. I Mm want to know about that, too. (laughs) Sure. Um, So I'll I'll go back to the the kind of start of my practice. So coming out of grad school, I, I love making art, but it's not like I had a specific, you know, medium or, or any type of technique that I was really exploring. And I do, I was teaching. So I, everything was about teaching. And then my first group of seniors I ever had, which was probably like in 2007, they kept bothering me about learning photography and doing darkroom photography. They wanted to do like pinhole cameras and, you know, just entry level darkroom stuff. And I, I had never done that stuff before. Mm-hmm. And I just nodded my, I, I remember when I moved to Savannah to start that job, I was going to be like a yes man because in years past I had said no or had been scared to take chances on things. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to Savannah, I'm like, I'm going to change that. So these students were pitching me this idea of doing darkroom. And I said, I don't know how to do it, but what if I found you some stuff, some equipment, mm-hmm. and then you can try it. And they and they agreed. They're like, yes, just get us some stuff and we'll do all the research. And I'm like, okay, wow. that's a good compromise. So I worked with the art specialist that was in Savannah at the time. And she found a school that had all kinds of darkroom equipment that they weren't using. So she drove her little pickup truck 
picked up all this stuff, drove it over to my school, and we just unloaded it in this uh, closet. And during like last period of the day, my seniors, I think it was like a group of five of them, they would take their research that they found on the internet and they would uh, experiment. So they eventually figured out how to make pinhole cameras. They figured out how to make photograms, which are when you have a piece of photosensitive paper and you lay objects or materials directly on the paper. And then you can expose it with some sort of light source, if that's a flashlight or an enlarger or something. And then you can take those materials off of the paper and then you put it through like a chemical process like you'd see in a dark room. Mm-hmm. And then then you have a, a image that looks kind of like an x-ray or a silhouette of those objects or materials that you put on top of it. Mm-hmm. Famously by Man Ray. Man Ray, the Dada artist, was mm-hmm. the king of uh, photograms. So my students made all this stuff. And I'm like, this is like killer. Like, I love this show me how. So then over the the rest of that school year, they would show me how to make this stuff. And some of it was just totally made up processes that they wow. didn't research and they just kind of figured out. And then a couple years later, I just started doing my own like bathroom darkroom and would, would uh, kind of transform my bathroom into a darkroom and start making these photograms and these, I call them cameraless photography. Mm-hmm. Some people will call it alternative process photography, mm-hmm. um, but basically anything without a camera and film. And mm-hmm. you're using chemicals, the photosensitive paper, and some sort of very DIY processing. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years after that, things started clicking even more. And I started to to kind of discover my own practice. And then I had gone on, recently had gone on a couple specific artist residencies Mm -hmm. where instead of using my bathroom as a dark room, I actually have a black tent that's actually used to do hydroponic growing. Ah, I love that. Yeah, I take it outside. So I've done a couple residencies where I've lived on like a donkey farm or Mm -hmm. I've lived on like high up on a mountain in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I'll spend time there and I'll just set up my tent and move it anywhere I want to. And then I'll actually put my eco-friendly photo chemicals inside the tent and I'll zip it up. And that is a mobile darkroom. And I'll even use water from like the local stream Mm -hmm. um, so that any microorganisms or like the temperature of the water is part of the process because mm-hmm. the, the quality of your water and the temperature of your water in darkroom photography changes what you're doing dr- dramatically mm-hmm. for good or bad. So I just started to say, what are the, the variables I want to let go of? So mm-hmm. I'm outside in a tent, I'm collecting materials. It could be bones and sticks and just items I find outside. And then I'm processing those materials and making compositions actually in the tent outside. Mm. So I don't have running water or anything like that. And then once I kind of established that practice, my work just got so much better. Like the mm-hmm. the subject area or like the, the subjects I wanted to explore really emerged more. Going into a tent and zipping it up makes your mind go into a different place mm-hmm. where you're, you're thinking about different things and it's really hot in there too. So there's like actual sweat droplets that show up on my pieces. Ah. It's stuff that you just wouldn't even think of when you're, you're, when you're starting this type of process. And then I've been in, you know, dozens of exhibitions. I've had a couple solo exhibitions, done residencies, and it's truly all because of my students. 
Mm. So my students are are solely responsible for helping me develop a studio practice to helping me innovate and take risks. And I really recommend that to all art teachers is either to make art with your students mm-hmm. or have your students' artwork and processes and their interests really inform how you move forward with your artwork as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I love hearing about all of that and just so much it's so interesting how you're using the materials around you and then also kind of finding, you know, I love using the hydroponic growing tent as a mobile dark room. <laughs> and then that almost becomes like a sensory deprivation chamber <laughs> sure. to some extent. And that makes it easier for like in my steam class, the, the room that I have is this big, like traditional drawing studio. Mm-hmm. So it's a little clunky for certain things just because it's this big open space. Mm -hmm. So now that I've done this like tent thing and I've taken risks and I've lived on a donkey farm and and made art in the pasture in this tent, I'm now confident to say I'm going to turn this whole drawing studio into a a DIY darkroom and I know how we could do it. And, you know, and I'm not afraid to take these risks. And years ago, never in my life would I have done anything like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to take those baby steps of risk that will build up. And then we're going to transform our drawing studio into a darkroom. Then my students are going to experience that. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to build that confidence. And then they're going to go into whatever classroom environment they go into when they're a professional. And they're going to know how to transform their space into whatever they want to create. Yeah. And I love how that's kind of coming full circle. Like you're, you know, you were inspired by your students and now you're kind of paying that forward to inspire the student, the students that you have now. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's everything. So just like we were talking about with the kind of controversies and conflicts and learning from those and then mm-hmm. and then not just sharing them with my students, but actually having them respond about mm-hmm. what they would do. I mean, that's like my whole teaching philosophy. You know, I, I can't imagine like reading a textbook about teaching and then using that. Mm-hmm. It's it's my experiences and, and what I've lived through becomes a lot of my curriculum in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And you did talk about how with this this work that you've been doing, that you've had sort of success in terms of residencies and exhibits. And I always like to just dig into that and kind of find mm-hmm. out where are you finding opportunities? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What advice would you have for artists that are, you know, looking for opportunities like those? Sure. So I'm not a huge like Facebook user. Mm -hmm. But one of the things Facebook has been really good for me is joining a lot of clubs that do have open calls and opportunities for artists. And I've just Mm -hmm. encountered, you know, opportunities through just links people have posted. Mm -hmm. I also just apply to a lot of shows on the cafe art site, Mm -hmm. um, which is a common one that where it's like a kind of a repository for all these calls. Um, And it's just a one-stop shop where you can search for photography calls or residency calls. And then you can read and see if that, that if the description fits what you do, and Mm -hmm. then you can apply. And there's usually kind of a small fee um, associated with that submission. So that's mainly what I do. And then if I, I, if I really want to do something regional, like the, the two residencies that I did a couple years ago that were just so formative for me. Mm-hmm. I literally just searched lots of different terms for art residencies in specific regions. Mm-hmm. And I'll literally spend hours, 
you know, I'll, I'll like be in a mode for like a whole week where that's all I'm doing that whole week is mm-hmm. finding all these opportunities. And then I'll save them on like a Google doc. Mm-hmm. And then I'll kind of go back and see which ones really fit the timeline and fit the description of what I do. So, and then I just keep that document. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have, you know, multiple documents of just all these opportunities. And then you have to sit down and actually fill out all the forms. You have to format all the images and then you have to, you know, pay the fee. And that's just part of, you know, submitting work as an artist nowadays. But years ago, I would have been tentative to do that. But getting a couple opportunities and doing a few unique things that I'm proud of mm-hmm. has built a lot of confidence where I'm not afraid to apply to different types of exhibitions now, just because I have, I have that experience under my belt now. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, we have to get used to both rejection and then Mm -hmm. also just keep putting ourselves out there. And yeah, I like how you also talked about the time it takes just, you know, searching, finding these opportunities, doing all of the paperwork and reformatting your images for every single call. Like everybody wants them slightly different. Yep. I'm telling you, there's so many opportunities (laughs) out there. It, It really comes down to the people that are willing to spend the time to do it and the people that may be expected to kind of fall in their lap. Mm-hmm. And maybe they do fall in your lap occasionally, but all the exhibitions I've been in are me finding the opportunity, spending the time and applying and just crossing my fingers. And mm-hmm. and I would say three-fourths of the things that I apply to, I don't get into, or mm-hmm. maybe even worse than that, say maybe 10% of the things I apply to, I do get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's normal. You know, mm-hmm. it's just how it works. Yeah. I remember, I think it was in my undergrad degree, a a visiting artist said something about that where they basically said, like, you're you're extremely lucky if a quarter of the work you make is Mm -hmm. like worth sharing with the world (laughs) (laughs) is good enough to be in an exhibit. So just kind of that idea that you have to be super productive, like make make as much as you can, even if it feels like it's no good, like the stuff that's no good will get you to the really good stuff. And I feel like it's almost the same with applications. Apply to a lot, you'll get better and better at it. Yeah. And then eventually like that ratio could even increase. Like it might go from 10% up to 15, up to 20. Yeah. Your work might not change at all, but the <laughs> the proficiency in which you fill out the application will get better mm-hmm. and your writing will get better and it will just look nicer because you've done it a million times. And then mm-hmm. magically you get into more shows, even if it's the same exact artwork. Right. Yeah. And then another thing I just thought of too is I like to share what I'm doing with my students. So if most of the work that I make never sees the light of day and isn't in an ex- a formal exhibition, I still spend a couple times a year will share with my students what I do. Mm. So like with the that Steam Studio class that we talked about earlier, the first day we define what Steam is and I show them lots of examples and quotes and all, all kinds of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But at, then at the end of it, I share the whole story about how my high school students showed me how to do darkroom photography and then it led me to creating what I create today. And I show them the progression of my images and what I'm doing today and how I've learned how to create these different types of darkroom situations. And they eat that up 
way more than the fancy quotes I gave them earlier or the definitions of steam because they want to see what I'm doing and they don't care if it's in an exhibition or anything, you know, they just want to see what I'm doing and, and they get inspired by it, you know? So I would really encourage art teachers to just share your work with your students, even if it's not anything that you're applying for or anything like that, because they, they will gain from seeing you work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And those, you know, just sharing our stories encourages Mm -hmm. our students to share theirs. And then we talked a little bit about time. I'm curious how you kind of fit it all in. When are you, you know, are you doing most of the applications and that sort of thing in your sort of off time from teaching or is it all kind of juggling it all at once? I struggle with that. I I think Mm -hmm. I... I do like put in a note on like my Outlook calendar and I'll say on, it's been too long since I've applied to a show. So Mm -hmm. I'll put on this specific Friday afternoon, I have to apply to a show and I'll just put that in my calendar. And most of the time I will do it. If it's in my calendar, I will adhere to it. And then sometimes I'll just get a spark. Like I'll, one of my colleagues will post something that they made and it's incredible. And it makes me really jealous how good they are. Um, and I'll be like, man, I need to, I need to rev up a little bit here, you know, and, and it'll be like a little friendly kind of competition or boost that I'll see from another person. And a lot of it is just like, I'll be bored on a lunch break or whatever. And instead of doing whatever I would usually do, I'll just put around on a couple art call websites and I'll just see if anything pops out at me. And then I'll just put it in that document and then I'll get to it eventually. And, and most of these calls have a pretty long deadline where they'll post it. And then a month or two later, they want you to have applied. It's not some systematic thing, but I'll usually just have this feeling like I haven't shipped a work in like two months. So that means I'm not productive. So mm-hmm. let's, let's check out what's going on. Right. And then in terms of art making, is that also kind of just squeezing it in all the time when when you can? So my art making schedule is not ideal. Mm-hmm. I would love to change it, but I have not changed it for whatever reason. So what I typically do is spend the high majority of the summer making. Mm-hmm. So I'll make like three to 400 individual works of art wow. over the summer. Mm-hmm. And say half the half of them are just experiments mm-hmm. or, or end up being just experiments. And I'll cut those up and use them in collages or something. Mm-hmm. And then the other half... I'll save and photograph. And then so from September to probably about April is when I'm taking the work that I made over the summer and then I am applying to shows throughout the school year. Mm -hmm. And then the summer will start in May again and then the tent will go up Mm -hmm. and then I'll start making hundreds of pieces and then just do the cycle all over again. So I rarely make an individual work of art during the school year. And I don't think that's a good thing. (laughs) It's just how my schedule works out. And with, with the, with the dark room, the way that I, they do it with the tent, it's not something that you just like open up the tent and then we're ready to go. I mean, it takes a while to set it up and have a location and put all the, the items in it. And, you know, and then once you've done that, are you fully inspired to work sometimes? And then you really can't leave it up for an extended period of time, you know, so it's just like a kind of a complicated process. Mm -hmm. So it tends to work over the summer when I'm not teaching and I can literally just go in and out or do a residency Mm -hmm. and do it that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And starting to just wrap up, I have a few just kind of 
get to know you questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, what are you curious about right now? Wow. Big, broad question. <laughs> Man, I, I, especially in my like my artwork um, and I guess in my teaching as well, I've been really curious about kind of like ecologies and, and how mm-hmm. things relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about that rhizomatic connections and teaching and things like that. So when I'm like observing my classes, I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to like put that into my artwork. So I, I'm literally collecting these materials that are very site-based. Mm-hmm. And then I end up making a piece of art that has everything to do with this very specific moment that me and my wife shared. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm not at the site for that. The materials don't truly relate to what that moment was. But some reason I'm building these bridges and I'm making these connections and creating these relationships with each other. So I've been kind of just that's just how my brain has been working a lot lately. So I've noticed that in my curriculum, too, where I've, I've changed some of my projects up like we're doing um I think in a couple of weeks, we're doing in our STEAM class, a room sized Rube Goldberg machine mm-hmm. where we're just going to make this kind of chain reaction machine happen and we'll see what happens. And I have no idea how we're going to do it. And that was something that I, I have never done before with my students, especially at that scale. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm just really curious about how things interact and relate to each other right now. Yeah, uh, that sounds like so much fun. I want to be in that class. <laughs> <laughs> We'll definitely post a lot of pictures and videos so you'll get to see it. Yes. Awesome. Another just fun one. What is your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, So right now, Chipotle is probably my favorite restaurant. We've only like dined in in a restaurant once in the last Mm -hmm. year and we were like on a patio. So we're doing the carry out like probably everyone's doing or or the, the Grubhub deliveries and stuff. But right now it's Chipotle and I get like three hard tacos Mm. with three different types of meat in them. And I cannot eat a soft taco. I have to eat Mm. a hard, crunchy, crispy taco. I don't know why. Um, uh, But that's my go-to for sure if I'm not worrying about calories and things that day. Nice. (laughs) And then is there anyone that you would want to thank or give like a shout out to? Sure. So we referenced her earlier, my, my high school art teacher, um, Julie Stout, who retired from Fairfield High School um, several years ago. You know, she made a, a huge contribution to my career. And then the first ever like after school program I was in, I was I think I was like eight years old when, when I started going to this after school art program. Mm-hmm. And um, the teacher was Linda Fisher and Linda taught that class as if it was drawing one in college. So like we had to draw like a cowboy boot using blending stumps and H and B pencils. And I was eight years old. So instead of like tracing my hand and making a hand turkey, Uh like maybe a lot of eight year olds were doing, I was drawing the cowboy boot project. And I didn't know that that was advanced or anything. And then years later, when I took drawing one in college, I was like, I literally did all of this when I was eight years old. <laughs> and and I, I didn't, I, I don't think I was snobby about it. It was just like, I was amazed that an eight year old could even do that. And, and they mm-hmm. can, if you, mm-hmm. if you put it in front of them and you have that scaffolding and you build those bridges for them, they can achieve these great things in art education. So without her, without Linda, there's no way, there's no way I'd be a professor right now, you know, Mm -hmm. that, so I would really encourage 
any of the you know elementary level teachers that might be listening to this, your role could be so immense. And it's hard to know it now because K through 12 is fairly short term where the kids are in your room for a short amount of time and they leave and we don't really get to see what they do later in life so much, you know, but big things can happen, you know, just from the activities and prompts and questions that we pose in elementary art for sure. Yeah. And I love that having high expectations and, you know, providing the scaffolding to get there, but Mm. saying you can do this, like, here's this boot, you're going to draw it. And I believe you can. Oh, yeah. That's great. Absolutely. I did want to mention, I had a student, former student of mine that was on this podcast. Oh, awesome. Named Rachel. I think it was episode 10. Oh, yes. So I wanted to, to give Rachel a shout out. Yeah. And I guess one of the things that pops up for me when I'm doing professional development, and it's mainly a group of teachers on Zoom, and they're exhausted, and they're desperate, and they mm-hmm. just don't know what to do anymore. Everything they try is hit or miss, and the students are still struggling, and they can't do anything else. And I, I guess what I usually try to say to them is, I've noticed that teachers are trying to prepare for like the unexpected. They're trying to prepare for all the things that could possibly happen. Mm-hmm. But we can't like it's just impossible to even predict what's happening tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So I'm urging teachers to just prepare to be flexible. So to have mm-hmm. to have lessons that are extremely flexible, you yourself are flexible. So if a student is not on par that day, you're flexible with them. You know, your expectations are flexible. Everything is flexible right now until we can get back to that normal structure and we can build that culture back up in our classrooms. But so many teachers are just, it's like they're, they're spending hours and hours a day trying to prepare for any little thing that could possibly happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that is just going to burn teachers out. Yeah, absolutely. I even see that like my, I have a five-year-old and we're, I've been working with her on like the many, many what ifs, you know, she'll, she'll come up with, you know, what if there's a tornado and, you know, everything goes away. And I'm like, well, you know, let's think about how likely that is to happen. And, you know, not very likely. That's probably not going to happen. So let's worry about the things that are probably going to happen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, and this year with my seniors, you know, they're, they had all these great expectations and then this gets thrown in their lap and they, Mm have to, they're building their, their teaching experience right now, um, which might be a little unfortunate, but Mm -hmm. one thing I keep reminding them is like, it's really not about the activity or the project. It's about you building relationships with them Mm -hmm. and trying to listen and respond and create that environment for them right now. It, you know, it's, they get hung up on teaching these very specific things. And, you know, I had a student that wanted to teach like this insane, like three point perspective lesson to their ninth Mm -hmm. graders. And I'm like, why don't you just pause that, you know, learn a little bit more about what they're going through and let's design an activity or project that really reflects that, that can still Mm -hmm. hit on some nice standards for our state and align with what you need to be doing, you know, but adding another really high stress activity for the teacher and the student is probably not what you need to do right now. So mm-hmm. just building that comfortability, building that trust, building relationship with your students. And I think that's the best practice right now. Um, and that'll be different for every classroom and every school. But I would, I would put a lot of that heavily designed curriculum and stuff like that, that might not be appropriate right now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I feel like that also ties back to what you were saying about sharing, you know, these wonderful quotes and and definitions <laughs> in your classroom. Yeah. And then the thing that students remember most and kind of latch onto is hearing your story, hearing about your experience and, mm-hmm. you know, getting to jump in and, and have their own experiences. Oh, yeah. I mean, my students yeah. always want to hear, like, in my teaching methods class, I always tell them about the first fight that I broke up. <laughs> and they're just enthralled. Like, that's like yeah. cinema to them to listen to that story. And I tell it every year. And I I totally admit how I totally fumbled it. And it was mm-hmm. terrible. And don't ever do this. But this is what I did. And they love that stuff. And they'll remember that. And they'll struggle to remember the standard stuff that you should know. Mm-hmm. But they'll know every detail of that stupid story. So. <laughs> Yeah, it really is all about those connections. Kind of last thing, where can our listeners connect with you online? Sure. So the best place to go, I am most proud of my teaching and my students. Mm-hmm. So I would love for them to go to our Instagram, um, which is at TN Tech Art Ed. And you can send me a message through there. If you have any questions or if you just think something super cool, um, I can send you resources that revolve around that project so that you can try it on your own as well. Um, I also have a personal art account, um, which is on Instagram as well, which is at Jeremy Blair Art. And you can see some of my personal artwork with my photograms. I have photo collages, alternative process type photography is on there. If you're curious on how to do the DIY darkroom or what what are you talking about a darkroom tent, I want mm-hmm. to see more about that. You could send me a message at either of those Instagram accounts and I can get back to you. And those would be the best places. I do have an art website too, which should be www.blair. Is it blairarted.com? <laughs> I'm, yep. I'm embarrassed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. um, and that has like most of my pretty good work over the last probably probably six or seven years. Um, some of it I put up on there that's not fantastic, but it kind of just shows a progression. And then other things I'm, I'm actually really proud of that are on there as well. You can email me through that website too. There's a little email box as well. Awesome. Thank you. And I will link to all of that as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I feel like there was such great, you know, so many good tips shared and just encouragement. So good. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.